but like what I found and and from talking to people in Taro is that there's such a big gap between what you learn on in school or in boot camp and what you actually need to succeed on the job. Hi everyone, you're listening to the Limitless Grid podcast. Today we are thrilled to host Rahul Pandey. Rahul is a Stanford graduate, an ex-meta tech lead, and a co-founder of a Y Combinator company called Taro. Taro provides precise, high-quality tactile advice to help engineers and managers excel in their careers. Rahul also has passion for teaching. He teaches Android app development at Stanford University and other CS concepts on his very popular YouTube channel. It was a really fun conversation and we thoroughly enjoyed it. And we believe that you will too. So let's get started. Hey Rahul, welcome to the Limit Let's Grid podcast. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, of course. Um, so I've been following you for some time. Like I did a boot camp, but then um, got a job as a software engineer. So your content has been like super helpful to me. So, you know, one of the questions that I had was, um, you know, a lot of the engineers, their dream is to work for a fan company. And you not only got a job there, you became a tech lead. Like what inspired you to leave that job and, you know, start your own company? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And a question I certainly get a lot because I think just to underscore your own point, for a lot of engineers, getting into Fang is like a terminal destination, right? It's like, oh, I worked so hard. I dream about it. I pre- prepared for it and they get there. And then what actually happens in reality is people change jobs all the time, right? So within a few years, they change another job or they do something else. And so that was what happened to me. Like I went to school in Silicon Valley. I ended up getting a job uh, at a startup at Pinterest and then eventually at Meta where I did uh, you know, I climbed the ranks. I did pretty well. Um, I think the reason I ended up leaving, like so many other people who stay at Fang for three or four years or five years, is that um, I think two things. One is I felt like very practically I had built up enough cushion, both in terms of my network, my finances, uh, in terms of my learning, that I felt like, hey, if I leave now, I will have the opportunity to come back. I'm not going to go into financial ruin. If I end up needing a job, I'm pretty confident I could get a job, if not at Meta, but somewhere at a similar caliber. So that was like one part of it. I had that safety net. Um, And the other part of it, I think, was just that I had seen evidence of what I was doing already working while I had a full-time job. And so I felt like when I made the transition to go out on my own and start this company called Taro to help engineers, I felt like, hey, I'm not starting from zero. There's already some... Um, idea or evidence I had that this is going to work. And as long as I work hard and I stay focused on what I'm trying to build and actually add value to people, I think there's an opportunity here to make it a company that helps many people. And also I can pay myself enough to live off of. And if it doesn't work, hey, I have the first thing I talked about, which is I have a safety net to go back to, right? So it didn't feel like uh, that dramatic of a decision, actually. Did you have like a pros and cons list as to like, okay, if this works out in like six months or a year or however long, then uh, I'm fine. If not, like I'll get back to getting a job as a software engineer. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if I had it like an explicit drop dead date of like I need to have a certain amount of revenue or a certain amount of uh, users. But I think one mentality shift that I did have is when you're working at a company like Google or Meta, they make so much money. You never think about money, right? Like in terms of my job as an engineer, I was working on building the best product I could build. I literally never talked to a salesperson. I never talked to really anyone in marketing. Um, 
when I left the company, I had to actually worry about how, how is my business going to make revenue? And so um, I think that was like one major turning point is like, you're giving away free content. You're making, I made videos on YouTube, right? I post regularly on LinkedIn. I'm giving, I'm trying to help people just through giving out advice for free. The big question mark is, are people willing to pay for that advice, pay for that value? Because if the answer is you're helping a lot of people, but you can't actually make money off of it, there's no way you can survive, right? And so I think it took me about four or five months, but then when I finally turned on revenue and it started working, like, hey, people were actually pulling out their credit card. That was a magical feeling. And that gave me the, the confidence that, hey, I could actually continue doing this for even longer. Obviously, you have a, you being a tech lead, you have a bunch of responsibilities. So what, what made you decide to spend, say, 20, 15, 15 to 20 hours a week on YouTube? Yeah, I mean, so I, I will say, like, my journey with YouTube is very up and down in the sense that there were some weeks where I was busy at work and I spent pretty much no time. And there were other weeks that I, I spent, yeah, like you said, probably 15, 20, 30 hours a week. And uh, I probably shouldn't have spent that much time, but I just enjoyed it so much. So um, I started making content on YouTube in 2019. And it was basically, I was learning all this stuff at work. And I was doing, you know, a lot of uh, Android uh, technical work along with just like, you know, what you find in a big company, cross-functional work, talking to product managers, data scientists, different people. But I felt like the work I was doing was very bespoke to Facebook. And I wanted to kind of prove to myself maybe that hey, I, I still have the ability to write vanilla Android code outside of the bubble of big tech. So that was like one motivation. Like, let me just learn it for myself. And uh, teach. It, teaching is the best way of learning, in my opinion. So that was one element. And there's another element too, which is that uh, we live in an age now where like what we're doing right here is like you can literally put something together digitally, like have a conversation or talking to a microphone and it can actually improve people's lives. Like you can teach something valuable. And that was addicting to me. Right. And so I had some extra time in the end of 2019. I had just gotten married. And so like all the wedding preparation was done. So okay, I have some time now. Uh, let me now spend, you know, whatever time I have making Android tutorials. And then that eventually shifted. We can talk about that. But after about a year of doing that, I kind of pivoted or shifted into more career growth content and branching out beyond Android. We, we were doing our wedding planning, so I know how much time that takes. And like not having to spend time planning, you're like, all right, what do I do with my time? I mean, yeah, so I don't know how your experience is, but like, uh, yeah, I, I, hopefully it's going well. Like wedding planning was one of the most stressful things I've ever done in my life. And so... Uh, I think, you know, when it was over, I had this big void. I was like, wow, I have like literally all this time. I, my, I mean, to be fair, my wife did most of the work, so I shouldn't really be complaining. But um, I just had felt like, wow, I have all of this stress and time uh, that I don't have to deal with anymore. And so that gave me this push to, okay, I can actually start doing other things with my life outside of my day job. And also like with YouTube, I would say like finding your thousand true fans initially is like one of the hardest thing you have such a great community and so many people follow you for advice and initially when you started like how did you go about like creating that community so i think when i started out on youtube to be honest i didn't think about that and in fact i think for people who are starting out on youtube like i talk to people all the time who're like oh i want to have a youtube channel as well my advice to them is don't worry too much about how people will find you or if your content is good enough or any of that. When you're starting out for the first maybe three months, six months, even one year, put up this focus on quantity over quality. That's what I tell people. 
And so I think that was kind of the mentality I had too. It's like, let me just put out content. Let me, there's so much that goes into building a good tutorial, like scripting, editing, figuring out what content you want to teach, putting up a thumbnail. There's so much that goes into it and you're not going to be good initially. Or like, I, I was not good. I look back at my videos and they were so, so bad. Um, and so I tell people just like, you know, don't worry about a thousand true fans um, for two reasons. Number one, you need, you need time to get better. And number two, I think that that's the, again, like the magic of these platforms like YouTube and LinkedIn is that if people resonate with your content, it will magically just get shared with more and more people, right? I think podcasting is very different. So like, I think what you guys are doing is very challenging because you don't really have the same, it's much harder to go viral with a podcast, but like with YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, a lot of these other platforms that I'm more active on, I think you have this really amazing functionality built in, which is that if you're doing good and you're consistent about posting good stuff out there, the thousand true fans will find you. You don't have to find them. And that was, I think, uh, part of the motivation for me as well. It's the consistency. Hmm. Yeah. I think when you're starting out, like the by far the most important thing is just show up every week or, you know, pick a, pick a cadence. Like for me, it was every week, like every Thursday I publish a YouTube video, but depending on like, you know, how, how much time you have, just like if it's twice a week, show up every week, twice a week. If it's once a month, show up every month, once a month, that's going to be a much more important factor in your success compared to like, oh, I want this video to be perfect or this podcast to be perfect because it's never going to be perfect, right? You just have to ship it. I mean, when I started out on YouTube, I literally didn't know any other people who consistently made YouTube videos as part of their job or even as a hobby. So like it was a very, very foreign world to me. Um, but I think one of the things that happens is that if, like again, going back to this idea of consistency and quantity over quality, if you show up and you put yourself out there, I think it's not that hard to infiltrate some of the circles where you can start to actually become friends or at least talk to the people who are involved and doing quite well. And that's what happened. I, there were like two major inflection points when it came to YouTube. One is there's a channel called Free Code Camp. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, um, but they're a huge coding channel on YouTube. And the way they operate is they don't actually have original content. Uh, what they do is they'll reach out or they'll collaborate with other tech YouTubers who are making a tutorial. And if the quality, if your quality is good enough, they'll basically repost your content on their channel and they don't pay you anything, but they have like four or 5 million subscribers. So it's a massive, massive channel for distribution. So I think after I had been doing content and tutorials on YouTube for like, I think I forget how long, maybe like nine or 10 months. So I guess I, I'd been at it for a while. Then I felt like okay, I'm good enough. I feel like I can match the quality or exceed the quality of what they need on free code camp. And so I reached out to them. I was able to get one tutorial published and that was like a huge jumping point, turning point or jumping off point for my channel. Um, the, on the day it got published, I had like a massive number of subscribers and views that I gained that day. That was one inflection point. And the other one was I had a collaboration with someone in Clement, who's a, another tech YouTuber and he does a lot of interview prep content. And I, this was maybe a year after that. So it's like kind of over the course of two years and then that video did really well too. So I talked about my experience being a tech lead and a staff engineer at Meta. And I think that worked out really well. And again, that was a huge turning point, like the second inflection point, which is where I got discovered by his audience and tons of people came over and discovered me through that. So Clement did the same bootcamp that I did. And um, he did Full Stack Academy, I did Grace Hopper. And a lot of people who like come out of bootcamp, like follow Hugh and Clement and, I th and I'm in my first job as a software engineer. So for someone like me, right, who wants to do better in my job, do you have any advice um, as to 
how to go about, you know, progressing in our jobs and like doing better. I have tons of advice. And in fact, that's like the whole reason I started Tara, right? It's like, there's so much out there that I think you, I mean, I'm not sure your experience exactly, but you know, you learn all this stuff in bootcamp. Um, and you know, you might, okay, I know how to like, I know this framework. I know how to plug this API with this other API, right? And those are valuable skills. But like what I found in a, and from talking to people in Taro is that there's such a big gap between what you learn on, in school or in bootcamp and what you actually need to succeed on the job. And that's like, there's so much that you need, which is actually not just generic advice. So I'll tell you a couple of things that I think have been broadly helpful, but I think a lot of it is really contextual. Like, where are you in your career? What do you feel you're strong at? Where do you think you need more opportunity? And then based on that, there can be really contextual advice for you. And that's, I think, why I felt like there's an opportunity to build a company here, right? If there was like, here, watch this video and it'll solve all your problems, then there's no company to build, right? Like there has to be some sort of flywheel effect of having contextually relevant personalized advice. So I think that's like the preamble to actually directly answer your question about, hey, what advice do I have? I think just speaking in generalities, I think one pattern I've noticed is that um, the people who graduate from a boot camp who do the best are people who aggressively seek feedback. So I think, you know, it's easy, especially in a corporate world where, um, you know, you obviously want to have a positive relationship with your colleagues, right? Like, um, you want them to think highly of you, you don't want to say anything negative to them. Um, but I think the people who do the best are the ones who actively seek out constructive feedback on what could they be doing better. And it's kind of this weird thing, right? Because like, if I'm if I feel like you could do something better, it's like, the easy thing for me to do is just to ignore it. Or if you do ask me for feedback, like, how am I doing? I'll say, oh, yeah, you're doing good. Don't worry about it. Because it's, like, uncomfortable for me to give negative feedback and uncomfortable for you. Like, why would I make both of us uncomfortable? Um, and so I think that's a big thing. It's, like, asking for feedback. Like, how do you ask for feedback? Because most of the time, especially in tech, everyone is, like, super nice. You're doing great. But, like, I feel like there has to be a better way to ask the question. Yeah. I think that's a really good observation that, you know, the default is just to be nice and almost nice to a fault where you don't help anyone because you're trying to be overly nice. So there are two tips I have there. One is to make it harder for people to escape the situation, right? Because if I ask you, like, do you have any, what, what could I do? Like, a lot of people ask feedback, like, um, am I doing okay in my job? And like the obvious answer to that is, yeah, you're doing okay, right? It's so easy for me to say that, yes, and then I move on with my day. So a better way of phrasing that question would be, um, relative to your expectations of how I should be doing three months out of the job, how am I doing relative to the best people you've seen three months in? Now, now it's like, hey, well, let me compare your performance to someone who else is three months in. So that's like one tip. It's like make it harder for them to actually give you a lazy answer. Um, and then number two is you can also prompt them and say, hey, last week in that team meeting, I felt like I completely screwed up my presentation and no one was listening to me. What do you think about that? So now it's like, hey, yeah, that's actually a good point. Like now I can reflect on that particular scenario. I think those are two tips that I, I've used pretty effectively to actually get meaningful feedback. Taro is pretty good. I use it. Um, in terms as like the founder of Taro, like what's your goal with that company? Like in like a year from now or two years from now, what do you want to achieve with the company? Yeah. I mean, I think the idea with Taro is that Right now we're starting with software engineers, but like I think in the five or 10 year time horizon, I wanted to actually be for every knowledge worker out there. They can come to Taro for credible advice. Um, so in the one or two year time horizon, we're not gonna get there. I think we really wanna be laser focused on software engineers and how can we make their lives better? So the ambition in the one or two year time period is 
no matter if you're at a, you know, they're kind of like three main axes upon which I think about software engineers. It's like, what level are you? What company are you at? Like, how big is it? And maybe where you live. And my, my like my advice or mentorship to you is going to dic be dictated a lot by those three inputs. And so depending on all of those inputs, I want to be able to give you really tactical advice, hyper practical advice that you can apply right now today to make you get promoted faster, get onboarded quicker, um, feel more confident in your job. And so we do that primarily through like a Q&A forum. We do it through live events. We do it through member interaction. And so that's kind of uh, what I imagine we'll continue doing for the next year is like making programs and uh, software to make that a lot easier. Yeah. Blind, Blind is also a similar community-based app. You know, um, one thing that I've noticed between between two is that, you know, the number of comments in Taro are are quite fewer than than Blind, and Blind has a lot of um, rude, you know, nonsensical uh, comments as well. So, what what are the other other differentiating points, you know, between between these two community based? platforms. Yeah. I think Blind is a great example of it's a thriving ecosystem of people who are largely in tech being really transparent about you know, here's what I think. But I think that the anonymity of it is what leads to a lot of the negativity, right? Like the kind of person who will be willing to say something anonymously without really attaching any reputation or credibility behind it that will lead to a very different tenor of conversation compared to like what we're having now, which is like our faces and our names are attached to this. We're going to have to stake our reputation behind everything we say. And so I think that's, that's what I think is going to lead to actually changing people's lives when it comes to their career. It's like I, I put my name and my experience and my uh, credibility behind what I'm telling you. And if everyone does that, we actually come up with, I think it'll be lower in quantity, like you said, in terms of the amount of discussion but the, the quality of the discussion will be dramatically higher. And not only higher quality, but also much more useful. So that's kind of how I think about the difference between Blind and Tara. I also wanted to ask you, um, like a lot of software engineers will like listen to this podcast and they are like, a lot of them are like entrepreneurial in spirit and you got into Y Combinator and I think the acceptance rate is like 1.5 or 2% of all the applicants that apply. Like what tips and tricks would you give to someone who wants to get into Y Combinator? Yeah, I have a lot of advice here just because I, after we got in, I think we got reached out to by a bunch and I'm, I'm happy to like hop on calls with people and just like share, share my advice. I think there are kind of two big things that I tell people. One is the very first question that you get in the Y Combinator application and also in the live interview. And frankly, the first question you're going to get from any investor is tell me what you do, right? It sounds obvious. Tell me what you, what, what does your company actually do? And I think you're, you'll be surprised 90% of the time, the answer is horrible. Like you can't figure out what they do. And like the way to test it, right. Is um, go talk to your friend, like someone who's smart, but not exactly in your domain. Cause if they're too close to you, maybe that's not a good, sample size but like someone who's like a smart friend um and then give them your like two sentence pitch because after two sentences you're going to cut off you're going to get cut off or interrupted so you don't have you don't you can't go on a 10 minute presentation give me it your what your company does in 30 seconds and then once you complete your explanation ask your friend okay 
say it in your own words, what does my company do? And I tried that. So we applied to Y Combinator twice. Uh, we got rejected the first time. And I feel like the first time we did that and like people couldn't tell me what my company did, even though they I told them like two minutes before. It's like clearly the words I'm using are too high level or not concrete enough to actually give people an idea of like, am I even building a mobile app or a web app or am I building an AI tool? Like people had no idea. And so I think that's like number one. It's like, just be very, very concrete on what does your company actually do? Um, that's tip number one. And the other tip I would say is um, be very specific about who are you targeting first. Okay, I think a lot of people have this very grand vision, which is good about like, oh, I'm gonna change a billion people's lives and they're gonna, a billion people are gonna use my product and it's gonna make everyone in the world happy. But I think that's not very compelling as an investor. I think you need to say, hey, today we're starting out with electricians in the San Jose area who are overloaded with too many contracts. And we're going to build a software solution for those people, like literally 100 people in this area. We're going to have the best solution in the world for them. Now, I think you have a lot more credibility because like, yeah, you probably know plumber or electricians in San Jose. And I believe you when you say, yeah, I'm going to actually make their life better. Where if you tell me I'm going to help a billion people, yeah, that might be a good idea or like I might, you might have a good uh, intention, but I don't believe you. And then I'm not going to invest in you. So those are kind of the two things that I feel like distinguish a better applicant from a worse applicant. So instead of going too broad or too, being too vague, like narrowing it down into a particular, you know, demographic, saying how can I improve their lives? Yeah. And then going up from there. Exactly. And I think not only is it about being very specific about attacking a particular demographic, but also explaining why do you have a unique ability to serve them? Like maybe I was an electrician in San Jose and therefore I know all the electricians in that area. That's like a really good answer. Hey, like you're the perfect person in the world to solve that their problem. Whereas if I say, hey, you know, like I'm going to go help, uh, you know, teenage moms in South Africa. Like that's a very good problem to solve but I am not the person to solve that problem because I don't know any teen moms in South Africa, right? And so you have to be able to tell me why you're able to do it uniquely and, and how you're the best person in the world to solve that problem. Also with something like Y Combinator, do you think like you having credibility with working in fan companies and also going to Stanford, do you think that helped or do you think it's purely based on like, you know, your product and like your niche market? I think it helps a lot. I think it's a huge amount of help. Like the more, the more credentials you collect, it definitely helps. I mean, there are some credentials which I think are worth a lot more than others. But yeah, like certainly going to Stanford, going to being at Facebook or Meta, um, is a huge. It like basically, if you trust the evaluation criteria of Stanford to admit people, or if you trust the evaluation criteria of Meta to admit smart engineers, then by proxy you kind of uh, also automatically trust that person, right? Um, so I think it does help. I think I would say like the big thing, which is even more important than just like where you went to school is a referral. And so for both times we applied to YC, we actually had an alumni, like a Y Combinator alumni say, hey, Rahul's a great uh, founder. He and his co-founder, I believe that they're going to build a big company. You should interview them at least. So I think that actually had more weight compared to just like, you know, where you went to school. One more question. Sorry, I'm asking so yeah. much about Y Combinator. But if someone who's listening and they don't have a network like yours and if they wanted a referral like what do you think would be the best way to get that yeah well i think the beauty of silicon valley or tech in general is i think it's actually not that hard to build a 
referral or a network around you, right? Like, I think the way you do that is like how we set this up, right? Like show me that you have a track record of putting out content and you've done something meaningful. Like show me an app that you've built and then uh, send me a message or send anyone a message and say, hey, you feel you have like a really interesting background. I think you would be uniquely able to give me feedback or advice. I'd love to have hop on a call with you for 20 minutes to show you what I've been working on and get your thoughts, right? And I think a lot of people, I mean, not everyone's gonna to reply to that message, but a lot of people will reply. And then once you've done that enough, then you're gonna have kind of by default, a really amazing network of people who can then advocate for you and re recommend you to programs like YC. Speaking of, you know, Y Combinator, Taro and founding a company, how, how did you meet your co-founder? Yeah, I met Alex about six years ago now when we were working at Meta. So we both joined like this division of Facebook um, called Building 8, and he joined like two months before me. So he helped me onboard onto Meta, and then he ended up switching teams, so we kind of stayed in touch throughout our entire time at Meta. And then we ended up uh, deciding to kind of start a company together after we both, uh, you know, what he had, he was at Robinhood, I was at Meta, and we decided to like work together. Right. Was there a specific criteria in your mind that a co-founder has to be, you know, has, has to meet these XYZ, you know, points in the checklist? Yeah, I think that there definitely was a criteria. I think by far the most important criteria is, do you get along with this person? And can you resolve difficult? Like, can you get through conflict with them? Because like you said, it is very much like a marriage. And if you only see this person for like one hour a day to talk about the weather, or you talk about you had lunch with that person at work, you're not really getting a full sense of the working relationship with them. So I think that's like the big thing. I think the secondarily sec secondary uh, criteria was like, it should be in my head, like the skill set compliment. Like if you're an engineer, maybe it would be good actually to have someone who has like a business background or a marketing background um, and vice versa too. Um, but that in my head is, is less important. Yeah. I think finding the right co-founder is probably like one of the hardest things because if you don't get along, then there is no company. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's what, I don't know who said it, but like in Y Combinator, one of the, one of the talks I heard, they talked about how the vast majority of startups, they're not going to die from competition or like some someone came in and cloned your product. That's almost never happens. The vast majority of startups die because the co-founders don't get along, right? So it is very much the number, the, the big killer of startups. And if you have a good relationship, you're already ahead of 90% of startups. Do you have a time and, you know, while, while co-founding Taro saying, that, okay, this is it, you know, if, if, if we don't make it this time, you know, I think the company is going to die. Or if we don't get the funding, it's going to be difficult to go ahead. Luckily, the answer is no. I mean, maybe ask me again in like a year or two and maybe we'll have some near-death experiences. I mean, so far, I feel like, so um, one of the things that Y Combinator does pretty well, I think, is that they tell you to launch early and launch often. Like, it's not launching, it's not like a one-time event. It's like, you're going to launch every month for the next 10 years, right? If you survive that long. So um, I think for us, we today Tara was like a consumer product where like individual engineers are paying for membership and so compared to like if you're building a medical device then yeah you're going to need like two or three years of development time before you can actually make revenue from it so one of the advantages that we had with taro is that within um a month of us turning on the paid version of taro we were generating pretty meaningful revenue so we were able to use that in order to raise funding and just pay our bills so I don't think it was ever like life or death. Um, and also, we're, you know, we're a small team now. We're like a team of three. So 
it hasn't come to that. But you know, ask me again in a year, and I'll I have a different answer for you. <laughs> what are like some of the differences of being an engineer or being a tech lead to being a founder? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, I can say like I was a tech lead at Meta, and so I can talk about that contrast. I think that like, being a tech lead too is also quite broad because like at Meta, like I said, Meta is unique. At Google is unique. Big tech is unique in that your job is really purely focused on the product and just like engineering. Whereas I think being a tech lead at a startup or like a series A company might actually be quite different. So I'll talk about like the meta part of it. I feel like um, the big difference I would say is that there are no problems that you can just escalate to. Like there's no problems where you can say, let me escalate that to my manager or to the director or to the VP and then I'll get an answer and then I'll act on that. No, like there's no one, no one is coming to save you in a startup, right? And so, I mean, you have people around you who, you who can give you really good advice. Like we have advisors, we have mentors, we have investors who I, who I talk to pretty regularly to get feedback. But at the end of the day, they don't, it's not their company. And they're going to spend maybe one hour thinking about the problem. And I might be spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week thinking about the problem. So that does come with maybe a bit more stress and a bit more um, like uncertainty compared to what I was dealing with at Meta. But um, it also comes with a lot more autonomy and fun, maybe if you're like, if they're that kind of person to just attack a problem and see what happens. How do you uh, balance your like mental and physical health with like so much going on with the company or like YouTube channel and like just building community? Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing, physical activity, I think is really important. And so for me, a lot of that manifests in terms of uh, pickleball. So I don't know if you guys have ever played pickleball before, but uh, I play pickleball like twice a week or three times a week, depending on the week. Um, and that's very, because you, you do run around and you get some physical activity, so that's healthy, but even more important or perhaps equally important, that there is like a pretty good community around it here in the Bay where I'm able to, you know, like there's a WhatsApp group for the different places I play. And when you're when you have like a partner who's waiting to play with you at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., then you're not gonna like take more meetings or like keep coding Past that. You have a you have there's a friend who's waiting for you, right? And so that that's the kind of thing that actually is very motivating for me to get get off my computer and actually go, you know, live my life. So that's some sort of an accountability. Yeah, that and that's actually like one of the things that I was, uh, I that we might talk about too is like the time management, right? Is having the accountability of like a co-founder or a friend or someone who's like checking on you, like, oh, you said you were going to build an Android app last week. Show me, like, what did you do? Right, but that accountability is extremely powerful because it's much harder to let other people down compared to letting ourselves down. It's actually not that hard to let yourself down. Like, let me have one more, uh, let me watch one more TV show. Let me watch. Let me eat one more ice cream. But if you have like a friend who's watching you do that, yeah, you're gonna be shamed into actually doing the work. So I think that's been very helpful for pickleball and for getting work done. With like everything you know now and with the current job market, like if someone is just like graduating college now and they're looking to find a new job, like what advice would you give? Yeah, I feel like right now it is a very difficult time to be job job hunting just because like in my working career and I think for all three of us, it's never been this bad actually. Like the last time it might've been this bad was 08, but it's, I mean, none of us were working at that point. Um, so I think that having a network of people who can advocate for you and like maybe give you a referral, that is more important than ever. And what that means is that if, you're, if you are in school or if you're working somewhere and you are afraid you might be laid off, 
I think just making sure that you spend time actually cultivating your network and talking to people, understanding what opportunities are, are available out there. And not just about talk, understanding opportunities that are available, just genuinely being curious about other people and like, what are they doing? How are they navigating their career? What are they interested in? I think that actually ends up being the most important thing for your own career and landing a job because those are the people who can then give you, you know, your foot in the door for other opportunities. It was great chatting with you. Thanks for being so honest with like the process for Y Combinator or like working at Fang. I think I think I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of this advice is like you have to just um know people or you have to uh have like someone a a friend or a friend of a friend. But I feel like a lot of this is actually um not that hard to find if you just talk to the right people. So hopefully if anyone if it's helpful for anyone, I'm happy to, you know, chat with them also just reach out on linkedin or whatever and we can we can chat if you had to go a few years back and when you were graduating what do you have if you had an option between choosing a startup or choosing a big company which one would you have chosen mm, probably big company a big company yeah i mean i feel like there are a couple things one is i feel like i didn't know much coming out of college like i was not a competent enough engineer to actually build things on my own so i feel like having that mentorship and guidance in a big company would have been valuable number two I was poor and I feel like having money is a really good reason to uh, it, having fun, having money is fun. And it also gives you optionality, which is really important if you want to start a company. Um, and then number three, I think that it's also valuable to have that credential. Like we talked about earlier, um, if you're applying for Y Combinator, if you're applying for something else, just saying, Hey, I'm a Google engineer or I'm a IBM engineer, whatever it is, wherever you end up working. I think that, um, that it, it, frankly, it just opens doors uh, that, if you didn't go to a good school, you wouldn't have had. So for those three reasons, I think for, for the vast majority of people, I think it makes sense to go to big tech um, and work there for a few for a few years and then pivot your career. Unless you feel like you're exceptional and you have this like amazing talent or you have a unique advantage, then maybe consider joining a startup or doing your own startup. But for the majority of people, the correct answer is to join a big tech company. Got it. Um... So usually these these big tech companies, you know, are, are also like a like a big machine with, with 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 a lot of cogs. And, you know, let's say these employees they, they end up focusing on on one smaller project in a, in a in a bigger machine. So it's kind of a limited, you know, view or limited experience that these employees get as opposed to working in a startup where where you have to be like a you know, a jack of all trades, so to say. That's true. But I, 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 that, that's actually, I mean, I think, yeah, you, if you join Google or Microsoft, yeah, you, you're like one, one, you're one tiny, tiny part of this huge machine. But when you're starting out your career, it's actually pretty nice to be a cog in the machine. Because like, you get to understand how to do your job really well. And you can actually also learn from the other machinery parts around you. Like, oh, there's like this other part of the machine. And the person who's operating that part of the machine is really, really good at their job. Maybe you can learn from that. Um, so, I mean, I, I agree that you are a cog in the machine, but depending on where you are in your career, that can be a really good thing for you as well. Hmm. I, I agree with you. And also with, I mean, I work for a bigger company than he does and having that, having people who can mentor you and like, you can go and like ask questions is like super helpful as well. Whereas in startup, if that's your first job, it, I can imagine it to be like extremely overwhelming. I mean, I think so. I don't know if, if you if you both know this, but like the first job I had when I graduated was actually at like a three person startup. 
Uh, I, so I didn't join big tech. Yeah. And so actually like in response to your question, like the reason I said that big tech is a better choice is I wish I had joined big tech. Um, cause I think I joined this three person company and frankly, I didn't do well. Like I didn't have enough depth of knowledge in what we were doing, which is like big data, big data stuff and hive and Hadoop and stuff, things, stuff like that. Um, I just didn't feel like I was independent enough to really add value in the way that they were hoping and the way I was hoping. So yeah, probably in retrospect, I would have actually learned a lot more, made a lot more money and just overall done better if I had joined Google back in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine like your first job being a startup with like three people. I I would probably be extremely overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, it was the thing is like, I feel like, um, I'm overwhelmed now too, but I feel like I have enough tools in my toolkit that I can do stuff about being overwhelmed. The issue was back in 2014, I was overwhelmed, but I didn't have the tools to actually do productive work, which is the worst feeling of all, because now you're like stuck and like, I have so much work and I literally don't know how to do it. And that's the worst feeling of all. So um, yeah, it's just, it wasn't really a good experience. Yeah. Completely uh. understand. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I know you're like super busy and but thank you for like giving us your time and just sharing your knowledge. Yeah, no, it was super fun for me to to chat with both of you. Thanks for having me.